Hello everyone, this is um, episode 61 and uh, I'm delighted, um, nay honoured, to be speaking uh, with the wonderful uh, Joris Deman, who, as you full well know, is uh, the composer for things such as the Killzone series, Horizon Zero Dawn, uh, the, um, he's, he's composed for MOBAs as well, um, and, but before we begin, one thing I want to say is, it's your birthday, it's coming up shortly, isn't it? Yes, it is, well, thank you for that amazing introduction, <laughs> yeah, it is um, Tuesday, it's coming up, yeah, I almost forgot, but um, <laughs> my, my, my daughter keeps reminding me, because she's, she's very excited about it, I think, they've, she's, I think she's planned something, so. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Well, uh, well, uh, you know, between uh, me and Pete, uh, a very, very happy birthday to you. Thank you so Tuesday. much. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a good day. Given, obviously, given um, today's circumstances and things like that. I hope yeah. You have a wonderful day. Well, thank you so much. I think we're doing a Barbie or something. So. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, as I, as I said uh, just quickly there, you're most well known for you know Killzone and um, and Horizon Zero Dawn, mm. but. And this this is why I'm, I'm going to be a little bit selfish here, and I apologise in advance. But the thing that re- I mean, I first heard your music in Kill- the Killzone series, which I absolutely love. The you know the theme to, uh, to Killzone Three um, in particular is I was actually listening to that before the interview started, and straight away the hairs on my arms were were standing up because it's so evocative. But awesome, thank you. Let's talk velocity <laughs> <laughs> because. Now, Velocity, I am a, such a huge, huge fan of the Velocity series. Mega, mega fan. And I was fortunate enough back in, I think it was 2013, when uh, Future Lab were um, first demoing it. And I was fortunate enough to meet, um, you know, Jack Hamilton and James Marsden, of course, who you mm. worked with on the, uh, on the soundtrack. Um, so, big shout out to those two and Kirsty and, uh, and everyone else. And um, what. I was listening to it a bit before the start of the interview, and what it made me realise is just how broad your range is. I mean, you know, if you if you listen to certain tracks from, you know, from Velocity, including its you know its title theme, you know, well the sorry, the t- track called Velocity, mm. um, and then you put it next to say, you know, the title theme from Horizon, they are polar opposites, and I mean, you are you've. You're one of these wonderful composers who's able to mix the orchestral with, um, you know, synths, the electronic, the industrial as well. Um, and what I want to know is because in doing research for this, I was trying to find a lot of stuff about the Velocity series. How did you get um, going with with that? Yeah, that's a really great question. Thank you, and, and thank you for your kind words. Um, it was a really interesting um, project because I'd known James for a while. We um, I essentially moved from Holland to um, the UK in 2005 and we lived in Shoreham for a while and then moved down to Brighton and we were basically trying to sort of connect with the people that were doing things in Brighton and there was there's quite a lot happening in Brighton creatively. There's an animation scene, there's, a, there's a, of course the indie game scene, there's a whole bunch of things happening and um and so we just end up connecting with a bunch of people and one of them was uh, a mutual friend of ours called john um who runs a, a sort of web design company and he had a friend called james marston who was making games and they were still sort of in their infancy at that back in that at that time because they were doing flash games and they were working sort of for other people they're trying to set up a proper games company but 
at the time didn't have the funds, etc. So we're just doing sort of simple things. And he'd played Killzone and he really liked the music. And he said, oh, you know, massive Sony fan. fan. And I, I met him at a party or something. We just started chatting and he said, oh, I'd love to work with you one of the days. And I said, yeah, you know, great. I'd love to see what you're up to. And, and went over to him a couple of times to his studio um, which at the time was very small and they're, they're trying to get different projects off the ground. And one of the things we got talking about was his love for synths because he, he was a bit of sort of a, you know, bedroom composer. He'd always had an interest in music, um, but a, a very sort of basic knowledge of it and um, had started doing some synth stuff in college. But he said, you know, it's 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 really basic and I don't really quite know what I'm doing. And And we just sort of chatted about that a little bit and I tried to, um, yeah, just make some suggestions of how we could approach certain things. Um, and, and we just, just sort of stayed in touch over the years, really, um, up until the point that he, he got bigger and the company got bigger and he managed to start switching from doing these projects for other people to doing their own games. And, and Velocity, um, and there were a couple of games before that, but Velocity was probably the first sort of bigger game that they did. Uh, it was still an indie title, and he, and he said, you know, I really... Um, I've got some ideas. I've got some tracks that he worked on uh, back from when he was in his student days because he's quite into this sort of techno, trancey type sort of, you know, electronica sound. Um, and he had some very basic ideas. And he said, I don't quite know how to how to produce this, how to turn this into something that sounds good. Um, I've got the ideas of what I want to do musically, but I don't really know what to do with them. So initially the idea was that my role would be more of a producer role in that I would take his tracks um, and turn them into something um, oh, that could be put okay. into into a game. And that sort of evolved that once I started doing um, stuff to it, it, it sort of became more of a co-composing job than, a, than just a production job um, because I sort of realized, well, he's got a sort of a main melody going on here, but he hasn't got any sort of accompanying chords or anything else or counter melodies going on. So why don't I just yeah. stick in a little bit of this and a little bit of that? Um, so that was sort of how that started. Um, and the other side of it is that, weirdly enough, my background is actually, uh, when I started out writing music, is more industrial uh, and chip music. So I, yeah. I started out as a, on, on the Atari composing chip tunes, which are, you know, 16-bit Atari 1040 ST. It was the ST, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. and then so that had a really simple sound chip, you know, three three square wave channels. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Yamaha two one four nine chip. Um, <laughs> I've actually written that down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just in case it came up. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that that's that sort of was my grounding really because um, it 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 what was good about that is that it forced you to write. If you're writing chip music, it forced you to really think about what was going in what was going on on each channel you know a chord you could n never really do a chord because if you did a chord you would use up three channels for a basic triad so what you would do instead is do an, a really fast arpeggio uh, and you could make chords with that and then you would only use one channel and then you could use the other channel for a bass um, and then you could make it also had a noise generator with a couple of different sort of shades of noise if you will um, so you could make drum sounds with that and you could make a hi-hat and then you realize, oh, hang on a second. If I've got a fast arpeggiating pattern going on on one channel, if I, for one frame of a second, um, stick on a little bit of noise, 
then the arpeggiating sound will have like a, a noisy attack and then the rest will just be the square wave. But that will sound like there's a hi-hat playing at the same time as the arpeggiating noise and you're still using yeah. one channel. So yeah. that was the whole thinking behind it, like how can I create these really dense chip tunes and maximize the amount of channels that I have because I've only got three. Um, and that got quite intricate and quite nerdy. So you could, for example, had a bass line uh, and if you stuck the bass drum and the bass line on one channel, um, when the bass drum hit, you didn't really notice the bass note themselves missing. So you could fill up one channel with that. And then if you had the arpeggiating um, chords on, one, on the other channel with a snare drum, there might still be gaps in between that weren't playing anything. So what you could then do is have a melody on the third channel and um, copy that onto the other channel with a, with a slight delay, so a couple of patterns or a couple of steps yeah. later and in lower volume. And then you could suggest that the lead line had a, a, a sort of a delayed effect on it, which is being echoed on the other channel. And so that got really intricate and really nerdy very quickly. Um, but it was a great sort of training ground as to, um, in a way, sort of working with counterpoint and working with space and working with gaps in between notes and doing something else there. Um, so it was a great training ground for that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, the, there's there's obvious parallels with the uh, with other sound chips at the time. You know, like the SID chip and the Commodore sixty four. You you hear about people like Rob Hubbard and uh, Ben mm. Leach using the same kind of <clears throat> um, you know theory in terms of using a fast arpeggio and things. So you, you're essentially you're only using one track, but you're sort of almost tricking the listener into into believing that it's spread across more. Um, and uh, and of course you're freeing up valuable well valuable data um, as, as well yeah um, with, with all that because of course all, all the music has got to fit into a very small frame of data um, and it, it, but I, I find all of that stuff really really fascinating because the the ingenuity of people to think outside the box with those chips and just sort of well you know how can we do this and think of those um, you know sort of applications is um, it, is is quite incredible, really. Well, that's that's that's, that's what it was exciting about, and that, that was part of the whole demo scene. Was thinking, th thinking of ways like I've got a very limited chip and I've got very limited resources, and how can I, what tricks can I do to maximise that? Um, and that that is something that I've noticed all across the board, not just for music, but for programming, for graphics. Um, I know a lot of people from that scene that went on to do some pretty cool things. You know, one of the guys. Um, I knew at the time in the scene um, was Tim Moss, who was from a rival group, and he ended up um, being the lead programmer on uh, the God of War series, yeah. um, and, and a really great engine programmer, and, uh, and, and there's quite a few other people like that. Um, and, and that was the exciting thing, you know, with the sound chip, like one of the things we figured out was um, if you took one of the timers from the, from the Atari and you modulated the amplitude of, of, the, um, of one of the square waves, you could, you could essentially simulate um, pulse width modulation um, on, one, on one of the channels. And so you could get something that actually sounded quite like a SID sound rather than a, a straight, straight up square wave. And, yeah. and so it was that sort of ingenuity and, and that sort of thinking about sounds um, that in part fueled some of the ideas behind the, uh, the Velocity soundtrack it was like, how can we combine on one hand sort of the techno stuff that James was thinking about with that sort of more 8-bit, 16-bit kind of feel uh, yeah. and have those things going on sort of at the same time. Um, and it was, it was a really, yeah, 
it's a funny project. It sort of came at the right time, I guess, because um, funnily enough, at, at the time that I started working on that, um, my wife was also heavily pregnant, and I think during the production, um, uh, my daughter was born. So we, we <laughs> I was sort of alternating between being at the hospital with my wife and then going back home for a couple of hours while she slept um, to to you know work on the soundtrack and then go back again and. Um, it, yeah, it worked out. It worked out really well, and and that sort of led on to Velocity Two, where James sort of realised, you know, hang on a second. Instead of him just sort of producing tracks that I'm doing, he could actually quite easily turn out, you know, a bunch of tracks that are sort of related and maybe take some of those themes and develop them. Um, and so what I essentially did, I'm, I'm a big fan of light motifs, you know, the, the yeah, both, yeah. Uh, you, you, you know, um, I've tried that in, in Killzone in the Horizon as well, is yeah. that establishing a bunch of themes that you can reuse. It's, um, <clears throat> it's that element of, on one hand, it's really good for the listener because you're creating a sense of familiarity and, uh, and, it, and it allows you a, a way of storytelling. On the other hand, it's, uh, it, it's a, an easier way for the composer to, to have something to fall back on, so you're not just creating new content all the time, which is what I used to do in, in all the games. Is I would write, you know, if I had to write 40 minutes, I'd be, you know, there'd be like 10, 10 pieces with completely different pieces of music, and there'd be no, I'd realized there was actually no relationship between those pieces, and that was sort of part of, of developing as a composer, I guess, is understanding how that works and, and how you can create that sense of cont continuity for your, for your listener.
thing I've got to say about the um, the Velocity soundtracks um, it, it, it's just how how well the music matches the, um, the sort of the you know the gameplay tempo of of each level. You know you've got these uh, really fast speedrun type levels, but you've also got these more slow, um, you know, ponderous uh, missions where you're searching for uh, survivors, where the music is a lot more uh, atmospheric. And I love how the music uh, sort of um, how can I how can I say it? It sort of drives you to play. In, in that sort of specific uh, mood, uh, mm. I would say, and I just think you, know, you and James have done such a absolutely fantastic job with that. Oh well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think James deserves a lot of credit for that because yeah. what what James has always been very good at, and Future Lab in general is 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 briefing, and that's you know I think an an, an underestimated skill in 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 sort of game production is um, people always think about the creative process, the implementation, and, and that's obviously also a, a really big part of it. But I think a good brief and, and understanding what the context is of, why, of where this music is going to be used is, is equally as important because then you start with the right content before it even gets implemented. And, um, and I think James was really good at that. Um, you know, and, and he would just say, you know, like one of the pieces would, you know, he said that oh, this, this piece is literally going to be called search and you, you, you're searching for something. Yeah. He would explain contextually what was happening and and sort of be quite specific in terms of this needs to be a fast tempo. This needs to be a slow tempo. This, this needs to be a medium tempo. This is more atmospheric. This is more in your face and, and sort of describe what was happening during the time that you were, you know, when that music would be heard, what, what, what you'd be experiencing as a player. And I think that's there's a couple of people that have really taught me that um is is to and and something i've learned especially in the last five to ten years is to i think as as composers and as uh, any part of the game development we, we tend to be very focused on our particular discipline because obviously that's what we're working on yeah um to the point that you're so focused on and and, and you know and, and as a games composer but i think as any composer sort of working with modern technology is it, it can get very anal and very nerdy about what plugins am I using, what sample libraries am I using, which synths am I using, da 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 da. Um, and the focus can be on that and on the mixing and etc. Whereas what you really should be focusing on, I think, is is the player experience. It's sort of you 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 start or you you basically take the player player experience as as the starting point and you work backwards from that. So, you know, it all comes down musically. What do I want the player to experience? Um, and then you start working backwards from that. Well, how, how are we going to achieve that? And, and so when you're writing music, it's, it's not just about coming up with a, with, a, with a good tune. It's also talking to the game developer and talking to the, whether it's a level designer, a music supervisor or um, a cutscene team or whatever, is, is, is sort of try and get the dialogue going between you know what's happening with my music and how is that going to complement whatever is happening on screen and that was a really interesting point with the original kills on 3 main theme in that um that was actually sort of more and I don't want to sort of take a massive credit for that but it was more my idea to to play it that way rather than what what gorilla were thinking at the time because the, the the brief was to come up with a sort of heroic theme for the main theme for the for the for the you know for the yeah. main yeah. menu 
And um, for, for, for a couple of reasons, I was in a very different headspace at the time. Um, part of that was due with my personal situation. My mum just passed away, so I was in a sort of in the, in the, in the process of grief. Um, but also felt like this is the third game and, and sort of having just come off the cutscenes, um, where there was a lot of cutscenes about loss and a lot of cutscenes about defeat. And, you know, that this was a very different game from Killzone 2. Killzone 2 sort of went into um, politically sort of preemptive strike mode, you know. Yeah. You, you're, you're attacking the enemy, you're sort of coming in with big guns blazing and you're sort of, you've got the upper hand. Killzone 3 was about the opposite. It's like you're actually, you're stuck on this, you know, Helgen planet and you need to get off and you're decimated and you're actually, you're out of your league. And this is this is a very different tonally. This is very different. Um, yeah. And it, it, I mean, for, for for the listeners out there, the the track that we're referring to is a track called "And Never We Fight On." And um, I think what it certainly as a player, um, the the difference between and sort of the emotional uh, feel between Killzone Two and Killzone Three was Killzone Two was all about you know the war, and Killzone Three was I felt it was more about what happens next mm. sort of what happens after and um, you know you've got you've got all these different characters who you know you've got people who are sort of characters who are more invested in the industrial side you've got more people invested in the military side you um it's sort of where where do we go from here is, is it just a continuation of the war or is it trying to you know what's the balance um and um and that track is absolutely perfect i think to to start that that journey of the third game it's um it's absolutely i was trying to think of something uh, more romantic but bang on point <laughs> <laughs> thank you um, yeah so. it's 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 a more sad and more reflective theme and i think exactly yeah that that was what i was trying to to sort of communicate with that music was that um yeah and for a number of reasons really the first thing was that kills one and two had basically different versions of the hellgast theme which is the, the the theme for the for the um the enemy characters essentially because visually and as characters are they? they're actually <laughs> well yeah exactly that that's what the narrative plays with is yeah. are they as bad as, as as you think they are and you're fighting them but there's there, there was an attempt there to, to create a bit more subtlety so that it wasn't a simple black versus white story. Mm, mm. Um, and it's interesting as well because you're playing as the good guys, but actually thematically, you know, the theme that you hear is actually the bad guys theme, um, which, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, <clears throat> but it just worked as a, as a sort of heroic, uh, almost sort of um, fascist type sort of, you know, epic theme um, that, that, was, that was interesting to do. But both the first and the second game had had that as a as a main theme, and so it felt like I can't just do another version of that. That's going to be so boring, um, and and also it doesn't feel tonally that it fits the game as it is. That's um, a point, yeah. So so what I kind of had to do is it, it was an idea, and I wasn't sure that it was going to work. So I essentially composed the piece in in two sections. So you've got the very sort of it's almost like a lament, I guess, at the, yeah, the, the, the yeah. first section. Um, so that was composed as one piece and then the more sort of heroic piece that is a bit more like, okay, well, everything's gone to shit, but we still might have a chance and we'll try and, you know, try and sort of build something heroic there. Um, that was the second section. The idea being that if the first, if they didn't like the first section, they could just use the second one and we could just, you know, cut off that first section. Um, but they stuck it in a, in a, in a, in a beta test. 
and um, and it got a really positive response. People were saying, you know, oh, I wasn't expecting that at all, and that was, I guess, that's kind of a nice thing to hear. Is is that yay? I managed to do something that's unexpected and kind of puts you as a listener and as a gamer on on, on a slightly different footing as to what you're expecting. And I think that's a really good thing to do is is to play with the level of expectation that you have and, and do something different. Now, I, I asked this of, um, of Jason Graves, uh, the interview before, uh, for just so budding composers out there sort of know, um, what's your um, setup, you know, in terms of composing? Uh, well, I suppose obviously it's composing now, mm. uh, but, um, but, you know, is there a particular uh, door, DAW, that you that you uh, sort of gravitate to any particular sound libraries or you know plugins that um, that are or, or synths you know that are your go-to when uh, when you first start out with a project yeah that's a good question um i, I think well my door is is nuendo which is uh, sort of cubase's bigger brother um that they're very similar it's just that nuendo has got some more post features and some extra little bits and bobs that are very useful for 
things like STEM exporting and, and, and those kind of boring things. But um, as, as a sort of general use, it's, it's virtually the same as, as, as Cubase. Um, and that's sort of the door, or, or, or the, you know, the, the um, it didn't used to be called a door, <laughs> the, 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 the workstation I, I started out on. I started out on, on Cubase on the Atari and then yeah. sw- switched to Logic that's on the amazing. Mac for a while. Um, but when Mac sort of went from OS, what was it, 7, 8, 9, uh, whatever uh, it was, yeah, yeah. to OS 10, um, I switched for, I ended up trying it out just to went on the PC because it had just been announced and I thought, oh, that, this looks interesting. And realizing I had such a, a good experience with it in, in that I could do everything in it because I also, not so much these days, but I used to do a lot more sound design as well. Um, and I found something that could almost do like a Pro Tools type job in, in, yeah. in the same package. And I thought, oh, this is great because I can do both at the same time. Um, and that sort of made me switch to that, and, and I've been on that since 2003 or four or whatever. Um, so that, that's kind of my, my main hub of, of where I, I start. And I usually start, um, I've got a couple of hardware synths, um, some really old crummy ones. That, I mean, there's some things in my rec that are literally from the day I started composing professionally. Um, a Roland XV 5080, which is an old module from Roland that's... Um, a, bit like a rompler really um right but i use um i use the piano on that and i've got some old sounds in there that I still sometimes use because they're just really interesting um but i use that because the the piano sounds just something that is quite simple but something that i know and the benefit of having a a, a rompler is that it's um regardless of how high the latency is on your daw um that the response is always instant whereas if you if you instance a sampler on your DAW and and you're running quite a heavy session. What starts happening is that you've got to start increasing your buffer size in order to yeah. um, still run all those plugins that you're running. And then your the, the timing starts to lag basically because your buffer size is bigger, so your response time gets slower. Um, whereas if you've got a, an external MIDI module, the, the response time is always the same regardless of what your DAW's latency is. So that's that. Actually, I would almost call that a tip. <laughs> um, and then I've also got um, an old Wardorf, um, Wardorf Microwave um, 2, which is a, an old digital uh, wavetable synth. Um, mm. And it's, yeah, again, it's got quite a unique character. And then some analog synths. I've got a recent edition um, Sequential Pro 3, um, which is very nice. Um, an Arturia Mini Brute. Um, and then Apollo... Apollo sort of UAD Apollo interfaces um, for for audio coming in and out and recording things and soft tube console one for mixing um, and that's it really in terms of outboard I haven't really not, not got that much um, a virus which I use a lot on velocity I mean the virus is probably the main synth used on that um, with lots of bounces um, and then the rest is all sort of samplers and soft synths. Um, Massive fan of um, Huey's Zebra and Diva, which which are sort of also used a lot on on the second velocity, um, and quite a bit on Horizon as well. Um, sample libraries wise, um, I'm a big fan of sample modeling. I don't know if you've heard of them. I don't think I have. No. So they're really interesting. They're great for for sort of orchestral stuff and orchestral brass in particular, in that they're not you know the the, the regular way of working with samples is that someone will have spent a lot of money recording 
you know, um, a string section and they'll say, okay, now play some short notes, now play some long notes, and now we'll do some legato transitions and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I spend a lot of time editing that. And so you, you're essentially capturing um, a, a pre-play performance. It, it's, I wouldn't quite call it painting by numbers, but you, you're kind of playing mm. the articulations that someone's designed for you. Um, right, okay. And so, you, you know, there is some level of performance you can do with that in that you can write the mod wheel and you can write some of the expression, but you're still essentially, you know, you, you're playing a performance that's already been played by someone else and, and it's been recorded. Yeah, it's been, it's been designated. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and sample modeling is kind of combining that with an aspect of physical modeling, um, but also something called performance modeling. So instead of approaching it, from the angle of I'm recording a, an existing instrument is I'm recording the nature of an instrument. So they'll record, they, they have sort of initially recorded notes of this instrument, but they've done it in an anoechic room. So it's recorded completely dry. Um, and then they've kind of essentially broken it down to its core components. So they've, they've kind of just taken these bits of samples. And, and so for example, for long notes, they'll have basically pitch corrected it so that it's completely straight notes there's no pitch deviations you're basically just getting the straight character of a let's say a trumpet right. for example and then where the performance modeling comes in is that they look at how someone plays this instrument so what happens when you play a staccato note what happens when you play a legato note what does this person's vibrato look like because a vibrato in a real performance isn't a simple thing that you could approximate with a very basic lfo doing a sine wave or a triangle wave it would actually be quite an you know an intricate kind of curve with you know, um, increases and decreases in speed and, and, and amplitude and things like that. And so to kind of try and capture that performance into a, mathem a mathematical equation, if you will, and then apply this to the sample data that they've captured. And so you're kind of rebuilding it from the ground up. The difference being that if you trigger a note or if you trigger a, um, yeah, if you start playing it, is that you as a player make the performance. So if you play a short note, it will it will be a short note because that's how long this note is triggered. If it's a long note, yeah, yeah. Um, it will be a longer note, but it's it's all based on the performance that you put in. So it's a very different way of looking at how instruments work, and it, and it's, it, it sounds fantastic, but it's almost like learning to play an instrument again because you still need to learn how to play that properly. It isn't just a simple case of triggering samples. Um, well, I, I, yeah, I, I bet. I mean, it, the thing is, um, one thing that people tend to forget is that maths and music coincide um, so closely uh, together. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously in the creation of these um, tools and things like that. But, you know, you look at composers like Xenicus and, and people like that. Um, I think people forget just the, you know, the science behind the music and, and things like that. Mm. It's, um, it is something that... Um, I think people should take note of rather than, um, uh, you know, sort of just casting it aside. I think. Yeah, and I, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is 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 as a composer, there's there's also looking at things to to a to sort of try and create your own signature sound because obviously yeah. we're now at the point where sampling is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, the kind of libraries that we got available now compared to when I started out, which is you know. I started out on, on hardware samplers like an Akai and an Emu sampler where you had like 60 megabytes or if you're really lucky you might have had 64 or something um, and you had a couple of those and you had to kind of fit everything in there 
And those samples were not bad, but still very basic to what we've got today. You know, you only have like maybe one or two articulations to work with. Mm. Sorry, excuse me. Um, and nowadays we've got, you know, gigabytes and gigabytes, even terabytes worth of, of sampled orchestras um, available to us. But the, the, the downside of that is that everybody's got availability to that. You know, I, I remember a famous story from, um, I, I had a good connection with one of Hans Zimmer's assistants um, yeah. a while back um, when, he, when, when he was still, still in the realm of just switching over from hardware samplers to um, software samplers about 15, 20 years ago. And, you know, he, he had a unique sound because he basically had the money to go in and record an orchestra at Abbey Road and, and was one of the first people to, to do that. And so he had a sound that no one else had because he recorded that in a very particular way. No one else had access to those samples apart from the people that worked with him. So that was a sound, you know, that was a very particular style. And nowadays, you know, I can go to Spitfire and buy a, a beautifully recorded orchestra or, or, you know, particular sample library. But I have to be aware that when I do that is that anyone else can buy that too. Um, and so... The, yeah. the the challenge becomes as a composer is to say well obviously I'm not going to get the opportunity to work with live musicians on each each and every project that I do so yeah. what is it that I can do that will differentiate myself between that and other composers and you know one of the ways is to to do that is to record some of your own stuff which is also things that I've done in the past um, but the other is to to really get to know your tools and to figure out ways of using them differently or, or just to shape your own sound and combine things and mix things in, in, in ways that other people aren't, aren't doing. Yeah, um, it's interesting you mentioned um, Spitfire um, because, um, well, bless them, you know, um, <laughs> under the weather at the moment, but um, they, I bought a couple of their sound libraries uh, not too long ago uh, and they have a fantastic um, series of what, obviously I know you know, but like uh, just to the listener, um, they have a series of uh, what they call labs um, mm, yeah. plugins, which are completely free. And I downloaded a, uh, a mandolin one, which was only released the other day, and it's absolutely fantastic. Um, I actually found myself, without even realizing it, um, the little demo that I've made, ripping off the um, Vampire Killer Castlevania tune. Even <laughs> Brilliant. About, I mean, I was thinking about Castlevania early in the day, so clearly it had some input. But, um, but with the... When you get the Spitfire libraries and you go in, you know, there's such a wealth of opportunity there and the sounds are incredible. But um, but like you say, the difference is making it bend to your will rather than um, just... I, You know, uh, myself and... Um, well, not that I'm a, I'm not a composer, but, um, you know, a lot of composers, there seems to be this sort of slight argument about whether um, you can use factory presets out the box in uh, professional compositions and, and things like that and or, or whether you need to you know really dig in and you need to learn um, you know every library that you that you buy I think there's an argument for both yeah uh, it's an interesting one I, I think the tricky thing about it is that when you when when this sort of becomes a job um, yeah yeah sometimes it's just literally time constraints that that dictate how much time you will have to to make your own sounds and I, I think it's sort of a pick your battles issue you know when it comes to sample libraries there will be things you will just have to grab because they're just there and they, and they sound good um, and you might use them out of the box as they are 
Um, I, I tend, I'm, I'm a big believer in stacking and trying different things together. Uh, I, I'm still using samples that I bought 15, you know, 15 years ago. Um, I've still got some old um, sonic implants samples that I used. They, they did a really good um, string recording, and the staccatos in that are brilliant. And and even though there's only like you know two or three round robins. Um, there's some neat scripting you can do in, in uh, contact to, to get some more mileage out of them by, you know, it basically transposes a note underneath and above it um, to, to basically give you more round robins, um, which, is, which is quite a neat technique. And so there's ways you can get more mileage even out of those alt libraries, and it's just because they sound good. You know, I've got some sounds I used, I, I bought ages ago, I made a massive investment in the original Vienna library. Um, I don't not so keen on them these days. I use um, the the Vienna Ensemble a lot as a as a host, but in terms of the samples, it's almost a bit too classical in a way. Um, okay. I remember looking at them. Um, I mean, because they're you know quite pricey, but I remember looking at them as being almost like I put them on a pedestal. Mm. Um, you know. Oh no, I mean they're, 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 I mean I think they could be considered the original inventors of the um, scripted legato. I mean they they were yeah. they were the first ones to do that. Um, I, I yeah I bought that cube I think um, when it was still Giga Studio. Do you remember that? <laughs> um, so Giga Studio is basically what everybody was using before Contact um, became the big. Right, right. And it was essentially Giga Studio was the first sampler or Giga Sampler was the first sampler that um, did streaming from disk that was that was the main thing uh, up until that point everything was loaded straight into memory and giga studio introduced the concept or giga sampler is the first one introduced the concept of of being able to load samples from disk so suddenly you could have you know gigabytes worth of samples loaded in at the same time that was a, an absolute at the time an absolute game changer that right. you, that you could yeah. do that so suddenly you could have massive templates and that was unheard of before that um, but it didn't have any scripting, so people had to write little utilities to do, like Vienna Ensemble had their own, or oh, sorry, I shouldn't say Vienna Ensemble, but the Vienna Library had their own little tool that did the legato transitions, um, so they would basically trigger another sample when it noticed that you were doing a legato transition, and now that's all scripted and you don't, you don't even think about it, but at the time that was a separate tool that you had to load up and then route your media through um, so that it worked. Um, there was all sorts of crazy stuff you had to do at the time, um, yeah. which also makes me sound really old. But uh, <laughs> <Not at all. laughs> yeah, so yeah. But some of those sounds, I mean, uh, some of those sounds I actually still use because some of the transitions that they did and some of the recordings that they did were absolutely stunning, and they yeah. still and they still hold up to this day if you layer them onto something else.
what was it like working with an orchestra for the first time? I mean, like, given that you started out, you know, so, was it the arts, uh, Atari ST demo scene? Was it? Yeah, yeah. Right so, so, yeah. so the, the first orchestral stuff I did was um, was actually Killzone. Um, yeah. That was well. It's a slightly interesting story behind that um, that I'll try and keep as brief as I can. But um, at the time, we, the company I was working with or working for I was in-house at the time, and it wasn't Gorilla yet, but it was basically the precursor to Gorilla. So a lot of the original people that now work at Gorilla were in that company, and it was a, a Dutch internet company called, um, or web developer, I should say, called Lost Boys. And they started a games division called Lost Boys Games, and we were basically trying to get publisher interest so we had these three titles that we were trying to sell um, one of them was a third person adventure um, the other one was a first person shooter that would, that would become Killzone but was called Marines at the time and the third was um, a 3D platformer called Knights and um, we were basically had sort of demos for all three of them and, and trying to shop these around at different publishers to get some interest and hopefully get a deal and I said to my boss sort of slightly flippantly, but I just read an article about this guy that had gone to Moscow to record um, the score for a game called Outcast. I don't know if you remember that game. Yes. Um, and um, and he'd just written a blog um, before it was even called a blog at the time, but he'd written an article about his experience and said, you know, I went to Moscow and he had some pictures with it uh, and he said well, it was a great orchestra and they were actually, you know, a lot cheaper than recording and that, that sort of got, got me thinking because I'd, I'd already started sort of composing pieces in, in an orchestral style around that time and I was very interested in it but I never really knew how to do that sort of properly um, and then I sort of saw a, an opportunity and I said to my boss I really think that these games we could sort of show an extra level of quality to the publisher if we, if we have like a, an orchestral live orchestral theme for each of them to, that that sort of drives home you know I was, I was kind of blagging a bit but that would drive home the the sort of the quality that we were going for and um and so he said well how much would that cost and i i sort of had a rough idea of cost and i think in terms of pounds it would have been maybe 14 grand or something to do right. a full day of recording um and i said well it's you know it's about 14 grand and he went okay um, pounds days uh, and he said well if you can do that for all these three games for you know you can write a title theme like two or three minutes for each, each game for, for 14 grand then we'll, we'll do that um, and then I kind of was a bit stuck because I was like shit he actually said yes <laughs> <laughs> so then I needed to very quickly figure out how I was going to do that and, and that's sort of how I kind of discovered on my own or, or by myself how to do an orchestral template because I, I realized how, how am I going to translate whatever I'm writing to an orchestra and I realized that the way to do it was basically set up my DAW in the same way that an orchestra set up so you know woodwinds at the top brass percussion and then strings at the bottom and uh, and, and and my dad bought me a, a book from um, it's called The Guide to Orchestration by Samuel Adler um, right. I couldn't read half of it because, uh, you know, as I sort of said to you earlier on, I can't read music very well. I'm, I'm not classically trained. Um, I had I played a bit of violin growing up, um, and I could read music then when I was playing the violin. But I played until I was about twelve, and then didn't do anything with that for I don't know eight eight nine years. I played in some bands, but didn't really do anything with it. So when I got back to composing, um, I couldn't really read the music properly, but my dad is a is a is a professor of music, uh, or was a professor of music oh, at the wow. time, 
and he said, well, if you write, you know, if you write it in a mock-up, then I can put it into a score. So yeah. I basically, I basically mocked up the the whole piece, and I would, you know, and it's still the same way I work these days. Is I I will literally play every part. So, um, and that's how I've always done it. So, everything in terms of like both in kill zone, in the kill zones in Horizon, is is, is essentially every note um, that's that's played by a live musician will have been played by me by myself at some point yeah. when I'm composing, um, and that's kind of the only way I really know how to do it. And, and not just played either. I mean, you, you you would have had to go back in and sort of articulate it, and you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, so and, so if that, it's that's one thing that people forget, I think. Yeah. So if it's a staccato line, um, what I do is is I. Some people use key switches, which is where you use a, a key on the keyboard to switch to, to a different articulation or a different mm. style of playing. I tend to have different tracks for it because it's easier to see in a DAW what you know when it's playing in what particular style. Um, and yeah, so you basically you'll play that in, you'll you'll you know, and that's kind of the way it works. Is initially I'll start with a piano sketch, so I'll I'll get my little crappy Roland piano going and 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 write a, a basic idea for a theme and some chords to go with that as a as a starting point, and then once I've got that and I've got the basic theme, that will then start um, being filled out with orchestral elements. So I'll think, all right, this is this main melody for this four bars it's going to be played by the strings for this four bars it's then the brass is going to take over then the next bars they're going to play that together and then I'm going to play some chords and those chords will be divvied up between you know if it's brass you know I'll literally have three brass um, tracks for player one two three and then divide those up among those three players um, and that way once you get to the end of your mock-up a it will actually sound like an orchestra if you've done it correctly um, but also, it's it, that is fairly easy to translate into a, uh, a written score because everything is there, um, and so there's no there's no additional arrangement required in, in that the sense that you know what, whatever is in your in your in your MIDI file um, can be directly translated into a score. That's still a process into itself because obviously it's not as easy as just bunging that into Sibelius or Dorico and there's you know Bob's your uncle. You still yeah. got to really go in. And then make sure that in terms of notation, that's got the right articulations and the right dynamics, etc. Um, oh yeah, I, I mean any, anyone who's imported something—it's certainly my experience with Sibelius. You know, if you import something there, there there's typically going to be, you know, various passages in in any given piece where you've got to go back in and you've got to, you know, sometimes laboriously, you know, sort of edit. Um, you know notes and articulation here and there and things like that it's um, yeah yeah it's, it's a process isn't it yeah and it's it's interesting because uh, when i started out i used to try and do a lot of that myself in that i would have someone you know in this case my dad would put it into into he actually worked with finale which is a hell you know awful program <laughs> but uh he, he, he likes it um wow. and i would would go in and and stick in the dynamics and and go over it because i even though i can't read pitch very well i can at least my rhythm is a bit better and i could at yeah. least go in and kind of go all right this is that bar and then you know compare it to what was going on in, in my music in my in my daw and then you know put the dynamics in um and i always felt at the start, when I was started to do this, I felt really bad because I thought, well, I'm not a proper composer. If I'm not doing my own scores, I'm not really... I had a, had a massive issue with that, that I didn't really feel... I felt like, like I was sort of blanging it a bit um, and not really doing it properly as, as it was meant to be, you know. 
And it was only later on that I realized actually that's how pretty much everybody does it. Um, and also it's a, that aspect of it, that getting it into the score is, is not really the most important part in terms of, it, it's, you know, it's a vital part of the process, but the really important part is the, is the composition and the, and the coming up with the themes and, and, the, and the arrangement. But once you've done that, you know, the, the actual scoring bit of it, which is putting it onto paper, is, 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 not, is not as important. Um, it is important for the recording, um, but I don't think it's as vital. It's not, as a composer, necessarily what you should be spending your time on, um, you know, in, in order to, to, to get it recorded by an orchestra. That sort of yeah. bit comes after, you know, you get it into a paper score um, and then you get to the scoring stage. And, and that's a really important part of it because that's when people start to play it and you can hear it in, in real life. But um, yeah. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is for other people that might be looking at this way of composing is that, you know, I think don't feel too bad if, if that's a part that you can't do because it's not, um, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's almost like that's not necessarily where your energy should be um, in, in terms of composing, at least in my opinion.
final question. This is this, this is just a random <laughs> one. One thing I love about doing these interviews is finding out the compo the other composers that people listen to. Now, listening to some of your previous interviews, you mentioned a few people. You mentioned John Adams, who I'd never particularly heard of, and I actually went off to listen to some of his stuff, and um, I was absolutely blown away. Um, so thank you for that. Because, oh, no worries. Because you, you probably mentioned that in passing, but believe me, like I'm going to be seeking all of that, you know, guy's stuff out. Oh, he's incredible. Um, you know, I, I, I've only listened to a couple of things. I've listened to, um, you know, Short Ride on a Fast Machine and um, on the uh, Transmigration of Souls, mm. um, which is an incredibly powerful piece. I can't understand why I haven't heard that piece before, be just because of the context. Um, it's such a... I mean, he won the Pulitzer Prize in 2003 for that. I, I can't believe that I hadn't heard that before. Anyway... What composers are you listening to? Um, well, thank you. I mean, really interesting question, and, and it's 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 tricky. I'm I'm listening to all sorts of stuff at the moment because I I always have to listen to quite a few different things. Some of it is reference. Some of it is stuff I'm listening to myself. I might have might have not discovered. And it's interesting that you mentioned John Adams because I've been listening to a lot of Philip Glass recently. Um, yes. Because I really liked. I, I, I suddenly had this thing in my head that ages ago I'd seen the film Notes on the Scandal and I realised, or not realised, but I remember that I really liked the score for that. So I kind of mm. sought that out and, and was listening to that again and sort of thinking, yeah, this is this is really nice. And I'm just a big fan of, of that sort of minimalism uh, or minimalist style. Um, and, and, and I really hope one day I'll get to do a game in that style. I was going to ask you uh, before sort of, you know, whether you would work in... Um you know, other forms. Minimalism is something that I like as well. I'm a big fan of um, like Alluvium and um, you know, and people like that as well. Who, um, well, of course, you know, you Aphex Twins, you Rhinos. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. Um, there's something, and it's interesting that you mentioned the mathematics earlier on. There's something, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely crap at mathematics, but um, I like the, the, the idea of minimalism, um, and, and that's you know, one other sort of one of my favorite all-time scores is um, are the, the Matrix scores by Don Davis because they kind of take that minimalist style and, and, and apply it to, um, you know, what essentially is, a, is sort of a ballsy action movie. But it, it was only when I started to really listen to it and, and analyze it that I realized how incredibly appropriate this music was for that film. Um, yeah. On one hand, just because it's so out there and it's, it's such an unusual take to, to, to do for, a, for, for, for an action film. But when, it's quite understated, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't say it's understated. It's pretty... Well, well, well under, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking of... Sorry, I'm immediately thinking of things like the um, certain scenes. Mm. But then again, then I'm thinking... You know, for instance, I'm thinking of the subway scene where um, Neo's fighting agents. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's... But, that's, but then it does ramp up, obviously. It's, it's, it's quite... Some of it's quite big. So I mean, I love the, the main titles, and they do an interesting thing that I tried to do in Killzone as well because I heard that he'd done that, and I thought I've got to try that as well. Which is that every uh, and I can't remember whether in Killzone they did a semitone or a, or a whole whole tone, but um, he, with, with the interest in the Matrix, each each consecutive film 
goes up, I think, a semitone in terms of what they do with the intro, which I thought there was this this little little nerdy detail that I really liked. and thought I'm gonna I'm gonna do something like that. I've um, learned something today. Yeah, it's really cool. But if you think about how that music works, which is essentially repetitive patterns, but that create complexity by having these different instruments play these patterns in, in you know, and these patterns have different lengths and different. You know that sort of is so appropriate to a computer program because it's essentially what a program is. You know, is is sort of built out of these repetitive patterns. So, for me, that sort of was so applicable to the Matrix as as a concept, um, which I just thought was really interesting. And I thought now this music makes a lot more sense to me if I start thinking about it in in that way. So, well, it has the visual elements as well. Like I remember seeing about you know the. Um when Neo gets taken in the taxi, the raindrops, mm. um, you know, like how the raindrops mimic the Matrix code yeah. falling down. And, you know, the, the aesthetic being, you know, it's nighttime, but it's still got that green tint. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just it's very clever. And I love, I love the music on that. And one of the other things I was listening to recently was um, the Midsommar score. I don't know if you know, for the film. I, I know the film. I haven't seen the film. Um, I've heard a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a very freaky film. Uh, I, I mean, in terms of spoilers, you know, we live in spoiler culture, and um, I've, I've had the entire final segment uh, ruined for me uh, by, you know, various... Sources. Know, <laughs> <laughs> so on. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I still think I will watch it, yeah, especially for things like this. Yeah, it's really nice. I mean, there's this, um, I think it's the second track, and it's just, it's really nice because it's, um, on one hand, it's quite droney, but it's just it's really it's really well done in terms of the sounds are really good um it, it does a very very good way of setting up a very sort of oppressive eerie undulating underscore that just is really effective and i was really that's one of the things that really stood out to me when i heard that film is i i love it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good film but it's i love it when the score is almost outshining the film a little bit um i quite like that and um and it really does. It's 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 great, and um, and he does some very sort of interesting, sort of bit of that Polish avant-garde stuff, you know, with Bartok pits and, and stuff like that. But it, yeah, it's 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 good. I really like it. Yeah. Okay, uh, quickly, finally, um, anyone on your bucket list, composer-wise, that you'd love to see live? Oh gosh. Um, Sorry, just throwing that out there. Um, it'd probably be a tie between Elliot Goldenthal and John Williams. Um, when I spoke with um, Jason Graves uh, a few months back, um, he managed to. He had like a 15-minute window where he could speak with him. Oh my God! He was just, he, he was just saying that it was just the most incredible experience. Something that's going to take with him. You know, yeah, I mean that's the thing, isn't it? You you know that unfortunately he's he's reached the age where he hasn't got that long left. So I don't know if I ever get to see or meet him. But he's he's like the. He's like the bloody Yoda from film scoring, really, isn't he? It's like you can't really. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a good analogy, actually. Yeah, yeah. He's like he's the master. You can't really beat him. And, <laughs> but uh... yeah. anyway, Eurus, um what an absolute pleasure. Well, and absolutely the same. It was really nice talking to you. And some really, really lovely questions as well. Thank you.